0: I want to do a little word association this morning with you, meaning that if I were to say a word, you might think of something immediately that comes to mind. And So if I were to say something like spring break, which it is this week, you might think vacation. Kids might think freedom. Parents might think, oh, no. <laughs> I'm not going to do for a week. They're home. Maybe that's why you go on vacation. I don't know. You entertain them. If, if I were to say opening day my immediate thought would be tomorrow. And if your immediate thought is opening day for what, I'm sorry, we can't be friends anymore. I'm just... It's, it's, I'm sorry. Can't do it. Some of you are still confused. Okay. Come back each week and you'll get it, all right? I promise. If I were to say UK, then you would just say stop, please stop, right, right there. But in a more serious way, if if I were to say... The word marriage, for some you might say broken, over, ain't going to happen. If I were to say joy or peace, some might say, what's that? Don't have any. If I were to say life, for some you might say confusing, painful, or even pointless, We associate different things with different words, and all of us maybe have a different perspective. It's interesting when we do something like that with maybe the word Easter. For some, you immediately associate that with one thing, and for others, maybe it's different. There was a study that came out a few years ago... And the word Easter was done sort of in a word association with people, and the responses were very interesting. In our country, it was done among Americans. And obviously in our country, most people are at least familiar with the idea of Christianity. The majority of people in our country would claim that they are Christians. And so most people, when they were given the word Easter to do in a word association, they, they immediately responded that it's, it's some kind of religious celebration of, of whatever sort that they might have mentioned. <coughs> But interestingly enough, only 42% said that Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus. 2%, only 2%, said it's the most important holiday of their faith. 2% of the people who responded said it's about the birth of Jesus. Another 2% said it's about the rebirth of Jesus. 1% said it's a celebration about the second coming of Jesus. There's some confusion apparently. I wonder what it is that first comes to your mind when you mention the word Easter. If you're the parent of young children, it's probably Easter grass, that awful nasty stuff they sell. <sighs> or maybe it's Easter eggs or bunnies or something like that. But I, I hope this morning to look at the Scripture in such a way that, that you and I are either reminded again or see for the very first time the word association that Scripture gives us with the idea of Easter. If we get this straight, if we understand what Scripture associates, the implications of Easter, then for us that are believers in Jesus Christ, those things become what we can associate with our lives. It's not just an ancient story that has no effect on us today. I want you to turn with me very quickly. We're going to look at... One, one scripture real quickly, just to set the scene, then we'll go to 1 Corinthians 15 and, and camp out there for just a little bit. Turn to Mark chapter 16. The the New Testament is the second uh, half of the Bible, if you will. It's divided Old Testament New Testament. If you're not familiar with the scripture, just if you have a Bible with you, go to the table of contents. If you've got a smartphone or a tablet, and that little handout that we put in the bulletin, you can scan that if you've got it, and it'll, it'll pull up all the, the notes in the scripture this morning. Mark is the second book in the New Testament, Matthew and then Mark. The Scripture very clearly associates the resurrection of Jesus with, with Easter. I and mean, that's what, what we, we talk about. I, I, let's set the scene real quick. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 6. When the Sabbath was over, that was the Saturday, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they could go anoint him. Talking about Jesus. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, that was Sunday, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? And the stone, just so you know, was sort of like a big a disk. It was rounded, and it was sort of on a on a slant like this, and, and you would have to roll it up and get it to a flat spot, and it would be rolled back down to cover the tomb, and they might seal it and so on. So these ladies are saying Who's going to roll the stone away for us? We we need to anoint this body, but who's going to take care of that? Looking up, they observed that the stone, which was very large, as I mentioned, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a long white robe sitting on the right side. They were amazed and alarmed, as you can well imagine. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has been resurrected. He's not here. See the place where they put him. The idea of Easter comes down to simply one word, and that is the word resurrection. In every gospel account, this is the focus. In the rest of the New Testament, that's the focus. The idea that this one event that followed the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross, this one event of the resurrection sets the tone for the entire rest of the New Testament. It was the springboard for everything else. It was the foundation of their belief And the apostles and those disciples that followed Jesus after he left this earth always came back to the resurrection. It was because of the resurrection that we'll see the implications this morning and the way that they lived. The reason they lived the way they did was because they believed that the resurrection had happened. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you'll turn to the right in the Bible just a little bit, you'll get to... Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then you'll get to 1 Corinthians. This was a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians in a town called Corinth. And this was his letter to them to help them understand some things about how they should be operating together as a a church. And in chapter 15, he's rounding out toward the end of his letter, and he gives them just a reminder of what the gospel is all about. And so he, he, he's one of the first to write about the resurrection. In fact, the, the first account of the resurrection didn't come from the gospels. They were written a little bit later. It's really from here with, with Paul that we understand he's one of the first to write about this, to put it into writing what happened. And there are several things that Paul associates with the idea of resurrection. You'll see there on the handout, if you want to follow along, there are four different blanks that you can fill in. Do a little Bible word association here for Easter, for resurrection. The first word that Paul gives us as an implication, we'll see here as we read it in verses 1 through 7, he understands the resurrection to be fact. He understands the resurrection to be a fact. Look at verses 1 through 7. Now, brothers, he's talking to his brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. Here's the message that, that I talked to you about. You received it, and you've taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe to no purpose. For I passed along to you what is, as most important, what I also received. So here's the message. Here's the... the if you want to know what the message of Christ is, here it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That means that he, was, he was predicted it was going to happen, and He did it according to the Scriptures. That He was buried, He was really dead. And that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Again, prophecy fulfilled. And that He appeared to Cephas, that's the, uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter. And to the Twelve. Then He appeared to over 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remained to the present. Some have fallen asleep, talking about some have died. Then He appeared to James, and then... To all the apostles, Paul simply presents this as if, if it really happened. He's not argumentative. He's not trying to prove a case. He's just saying, "Here's the message: Jesus died. He was really dead, so they buried him, and he was raised again, and he made appearances to several different people, five hundred at one time, and a lot of those people, the majority of them, are still alive. They're eyewitnesses to that." Now, I realized this morning that we may have two different kinds of mindsets here today. Maybe, maybe more. But at least two. There are some here today and you are convinced that the resurrection happened. And you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You've given your life to Him and and you're not doubting any of that. And yet, maybe if someone came to you and said, Well, how in the world do you know? How can you be sure of that? That just sounds crazy. You're telling me that a guy was dead. Really dead. And a couple of days later... He came back to life. Never seen that. I've done lots of funerals. Not once. Yet, not once has anybody in the casket sat up there in the funeral and said, "Hold on a second. Not really dead yet." That happened. What would you say? There are others who are that skeptic this morning. You say, okay, look, I came to church this morning because somebody told me I should, or, you know, okay, I think maybe there's a God, so I, I, you know, whatever. There's a book called The Reason for God, and it's a really interesting read. It's called uh, Faith in the Age of Skepticism. That's the subtitle. It's by a pastor from New York. His name is Tim Keller, and he wrote a chapter in it called The Reality of the Resurrection. This guy's pretty sharp. And he's among really sharp people. Lots of young people, lots of young professionals. Very educated there in New York where his church is. And So he presents this idea of how can you have confidence that the resurrection actually happened. He talks about the skepticism that some people have. That well, you know, the gospel accounts. I mean, they, they, were, they were compiled and written down and handed out and passed around years and years after they happened. I mean, you know, it's, it was a long time. But he makes the point that the first writings that appeared, based upon what was handed down through their verbal transmission of the story, the first writings really appeared just 15 to 20 years later. Paul says here, I'm going I'm to tell you, he says, I, I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received, what I heard. Paul says he was risen on the third day. He presents it as if it were an actual day that happened, not some mysterious thing, not some made-up kind of deal. Just presents it as if here's the third day. He also says that Jesus, after he was risen, appeared to lots and lots of people. And he says most of them are still alive. Essentially implying, if you don't believe what I'm telling you, go ask one of them. They saw him. Paul presents this empty tomb. Jesus is no longer there. He was raised again. And these appearances to different people as together, as if they they cannot be separated. And the reason for that is if the empty tomb had been there, but there were no sightings, nobody saw Jesus, but the tomb is empty, maybe you just assume the disciples stole the body. They're trying to, to perpetrate a hoax, make people think that he had risen. But if there had been sightings of Jesus, but his body's still in the tomb, then you just think, well, they're crazy. I mean, they're just making stuff up. The idea during the time of a bodily resurrection was inconceivable. The people in the secular world, the Greco-Roman world at the time, were under the impression that a soul that had escaped the body had reached freedom. And that was the goal. Why in the world, if a soul had reached that kind of level, would it ever want to be reunited with a body? That's just stupid to them. The idea of resurrection didn't make any sense. The goal was to escape, not to be reunited. And even amongst Jewish people, They thought maybe one day there will be a great resurrection. All of God's people, after he renews the entire earth, will all rise together. The idea of one person doing that before all the other stuff happened and to the exclusion of everyone else was foreign to them. So the idea of resurrection was something that if you're trying to play a hoax on people, they wouldn't believe you in the first place unless it really happened. People wouldn't have bought it if it didn't happen. Maybe you say, well, they're just hallucinating. (laughs) They just wanted it to be true, so they, they sort of dreamt that it happened. But again, if they're trying to convince people he's really alive and they don't believe in resurrection, what would have to happen? They'd have to say, I saw him. It really did happen. Others might say the disciples stole the body. But again, if you're trying to pull over something on people who aren't going to believe it in the first place, that doesn't make any sense. Keller lists a few questions for the skeptic. And maybe these will be good for you if you're a little skeptical. Or maybe if you say, you know, I just I want to have this confirmed a little more. I, you know, help me understand this more. He lists a few questions. Paul presents this as fact, and Keller has some questions. Why did Christianity emerge at the time so rapidly, so explosively, and with such power... If those who followed Jesus did not truly believe that he was resurrected, why would it have any power whatsoever? Why is it that no other group, and there were lots and lots of self-proclaimed messiahs at the time, why did no other group after the death of their hero claim that he had been risen again? The Christians were the only one. If no other if no other person was worshiped by Jewish people as being God himself, God in human flesh, then why did they worship Jesus as such after his resurrection? What changed their minds? How do you account for the hundreds, Paul says, of eyewitnesses who maintained a public testimony and even were willing to die for what they said about Jesus? If you're a skeptic this morning, and some may be, quite honestly, you should want the resurrection to be true should want it to be true. Because we have so many people in our world who would claim that they don't believe the Bible, and yet they are some of the most justice-oriented kinds of people. You want justice for the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized. You want to take care of the environment. You you want to, to rid the world of hunger and disease. And yet... At the same time, if you maintain that belief and that conviction and yet say that, that everything that has happened is by pure chance and accident with no purpose, then why does the stuff that you care about so much get you so much? Why does it even matter if in the end it doesn't matter? You don't want it to be true, even if you don't believe it. So the resurrection is a problem. It's a problem because those who dismiss miracles altogether have to deal with those particular questions. Because if it didn't happen, those questions are still there. If you don't believe it happened. But since it happened, it changes everything. Paul just presents it as fact. He goes on to present it also as something that is essential. It's essential. Look at verse 12. And follow follow this. He he repeats some things here, so so hang with it. Now, if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, if we're saying that's what happened, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So he starts with a rhetorical question. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. Okay? And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is without foundation. We're we're spreading lies. we're, We're talking nonsense. And so is your faith. You understand that the faith of Christianity comes down to one event. Did Jesus rise from the dead or not? That's it. It's the foundation of our faith. In addition, we are found to be false prophets about God. We're lying about this God we say we believe in. Because we have testified about God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised, obviously. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. Therefore, those who have fallen asleep or have died in Christ while believing in him have also perished. They're gone. No hope. If we placed our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. You know, I've heard people say before, In a defense of their faith in Jesus. Well, you know, I mean, if if, if in the end I die and it wasn't all true, then, you know, then I, I didn't lose anything. I mean, I lived a pretty good life. You know what Paul says about that? Garbage. Garbage. Useless. He says if Jesus Christ is not alive, give up on the Christian faith. Do whatever you want to do. Why? Because it's just this life. Who cares? part of the reason why I don't understand the morality that we see, or at least the supposed morality and claims of right and wrong from whatever perspective they may bring of folks who do not believe anything about the scripture. Why have any sense of right and wrong if none of this is true? I don't get it. Paul says without the resurrection, what we believe is just plain stupid. It's useless. He says without the resurrection, the Christian life is a complete waste to <laughs> give up on it. The resurrection, he says, though, is essential because if it's true, <laughs> then it's the anchor. It's the foundation of our faith. It really does matter. So the resurrection for Paul is both fact and it is essential, and that changes everything, which is where he turns next, because what he's going to show us next is based upon the fact of the resurrection and how essential it is to our faith. He's going to show us the implications. I don't want you to leave here today with a mind minefield with okay... Maybe I, you know, I believe a little bit more about the, the fact of the resurrection. I kind of get that. And I see how essential it is to my faith. That's good, and that's head knowledge, and you need that stuff too. But I want to give you both, the head knowledge and then the inspiration that comes because of the fact and because of the essential nature of the, resur- of the resurrection. He goes immediately into verse 20. The implications of the resurrection. He says in verse 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits. That means he's the preview of those who have fallen asleep, of those who, who have died. For since death came through a man, that's Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, that's Jesus. For just as in Adam all die, which means we all inherit a sinful nature under God's wrath because of our sinful nature and because of the sins we commit, so also Christ, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the fruits, That means he's going to rise first, or he did already. Afterward, at his coming, the people of Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death, for he has put everything under his feet. But when it says everything is put under him, it's obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. And when everything is subject to him, the Son himself will also be subject to him. That's God the Father who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. Now here's what he's saying. The first implication of the fact and the essential nature of the resurrection is that there is hope. There's hope. He says Christ has been raised from the dead. And guess what will happen? He says one day, so will we. We also At his second coming, Jesus has promised, I came once to bring salvation. I'm coming again to bring judgment. And at that time, everybody who has believed in me, if you've died, you'll be raised again to meet him in the air, and we'll all stand before Jesus. The truth is, all of us are going to meet Jesus one day, just as these eyewitnesses did. Some will meet him only as judge, some will meet him as savior. Because in this life, not counting on some hope in some other life, in this life you surrendered to Jesus Christ in faith. There's hope that this life is not all there is. And I don't know about you, but quite often I get pretty discouraged about the life that we have here. About the state of the world and what's going on and the godlessness and all the stuff that we see, I get pretty discouraged sometimes. And I easily lose sight of the hope that comes from knowing that Jesus is alive. That this is not all there is. That one day, one day he'll come back and he'll set everything right. There's hope, Paul says. And then he gives a second implication that really goes hand in hand with the hope. And that's found in verse 50 through 57. Look at it real quick. He says, brothers, I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That means we all have to be made different, spiritual nature. And corruption cannot inherit incorruption. That means our flesh as it is cannot live with Jesus forever. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery or something that's now being revealed. We will not all fall asleep. It means we're not all going to die, but we will all be changed In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. we will be renewed completely. New bodies that can't die. And we will be changed. Because this corruptible, he's talking about our bodies, must be clothed with incorruptibility. And this mortal must be clothed with immortality. Now when this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place, death has been swallowed up in victory. And as Kathy's saying, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us what? The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second implication. We get hope and we get victory. The truth is, as a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus, you're on the winning side, no matter what this world looks like. That's not just a pep talk. It's reality. We have victory over the problems of this world. We have victory in this life. We have victory, Paul says over our greatest enemy, which is death, because the Lord promises eternal life to all who will believe in him. We have victory in heaven forever. We get the idea from revelation that there's no more sorrow, there's no more pain, there's no more problems, there's no more drama. There's no more death. There's no more cancer. There's no more depression. None of the stuff that we've dealt with that's been so difficult. There's only God's love, His peace, the happiness He brings. There's only life and wholeness. There's victory. The Gospel of John is one that I would encourage you to pick up and read because it gives us the idea that there is eternal life waiting for us, but you know what John sees it as as well? is, yeah, that's not yet, we'll get there one day when Jesus returns, but he sees it as the now we can experience, even though we're not yet with Jesus. He sees now and not yet. Paul is saying we have victory, and you look through the other books of the Scripture, and you see the idea that victory isn't just one day, it starts now. Because now... By the power of the resurrection. Paul said in Philippians he wanted to know that power. He wanted to experience it in his life now. Now because of that there's victory over sin. There's victory over temptation. There's victory over the effects of that divorce or your past. Or what's holding you back in life. Or the relationship trouble that you're having. Or your broken heart. Or your fear or your guilt or your bad habits. There's victory over all of that. Because of the resurrection of Jesus. So let me... Bring it home. We're going to sing in just a few moments a closing song called Because He Lives, which is the title of the sermon today as well. It's one of my favorites. I I love the truth in it. It's a simple song, just a couple of verses, and it's really, really powerful. I want you to, to, to remember this today and let God speak it into your heart. Meditate on it, meaning fill your mind with it and leave with it today That because he lives, so can I. And we'll fill in the blank on this in just a minute. So can my whatever. Because he lives, so can I. Both now and later. I, I can live with Jesus for all eternity. When I place my faith in him, when I believe in him as the son of God, the one true sacrifice for my sins, I am given eternal life. I will live forever with Jesus. But I also can live now. In the power of the resurrection, the benefits that God has for me now, the life, the hope, the joy, I can live now over sin, over temptation, in spite of my past, no matter what life throws at me, over my problems. I can live now to be the person that God created me to be. Not just one day, but right now. Not because I'm going to leave here and try to do better. Let me encourage you when you leave here, don't try to do better. Boy, that was an inspiring sermon. I need to do better now. Don't try to do better. You can make all kinds of efforts you want, doing better and doing better, and guess what you're going to do? Not do any better. You ever tried? You are just come full circle? Hate yourself all over again? You know, I get it. Because he lives, so can I. Not because I'm trying to do better. But because Jesus is alive, and when he lives his life through me, then I'm fully alive. When I experience the power of the resurrection by surrendering myself to the Lord and saying, I give up, I can't do this. God says, finally you get it. You can't do it. Let me live my life through you. Jesus said it himself in Luke chapter 9, just simply deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Let him live his life through you. Don't try harder. Just submit. Because he lives, so can I, and so can my, I want you to, to write something down. Maybe you look this morning in your life and you say, here's where I need the hope and victory that the resurrection offers me. Maybe it's in marriage, or in your work, or parenting, or in your attitude and outlook on life, or in your mind, and your emotions. I don't know where it may be for you, but when you evaluate your life, where is it that you see no hope and you see no victory? And where is it this morning that you'd simply cry out to God and say, Lord, I submit this area of my life to you. I know without you, Lord Jesus, I cannot have hope. I cannot have victory. So you take it. Paul closes with a verse in this chapter, and he says in verse 58, Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In truth, if we're honest, our lives are often anything but steadfast, immovable, always excelling, and feeling as if it's not in vain. But he just presented to us the fact, the essential nature, the hope and the victory that come through the resurrection. And so as you look, maybe, if something that you write down this morning to say, Lord, here it is. In my life, I have no hope. I have no victory. In whatever area of life, this morning, my prayer for you is that you will receive the offer of grace, the offer of of salvation and new life that Jesus provides through His crucifixion and through His resurrection. Peace with God, reconciliation with God, and new life, both now and forever. My prayer for you this morning is that you'll trade in whatever despair and defeat you see in your life for hope and victory. That you'll trade in your life for hope and victory. You'll trade in your marriage for hope and victory. You'll trade in your parenting, your school, your emotions, your hurt, your pain for hope and for victory. Does that mean everything else goes away? No. Because there's a not yet aspect to this as well, right? But that means now, though, that you can begin to live in and see lived out through you the hope and victory that Jesus gives us through his crucifixion and through his resurrection. Paul presents it as a fact that's essential to our faith, that brings us hope and victory that we cannot get anywhere else. The question then remains, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with the fact, the essential nature What do you do with the offer of hope and victory? My prayer is that you receive it. By faith, the scripture says. Simply believing in Jesus. Turning from a life of sin, believing in Him. You see, I don't know what to do. I don't have magic words for you, I'll be honest. But the Bible tells us to believe, to confess Him as Lord of our lives, And maybe you just say a prayer this morning and say, Lord, I believe in you. I want you to be Lord of my life and I give it to you. I don't know what all that means. I don't know the full implication. But this morning, I'm not leaving here without doing that. No better time than Easter Sunday morning. In just a moment, I'll be standing down here. and You're more than welcome to come and ask for prayer. If you've got something in your life, you say, you know, would you pray for me? Or maybe you've made the decision this morning... For the very first time to say, I'm giving my life to Jesus. I don't even know what it means, but I'm giving it to him. I know he's my only way for salvation. I know the fact, the essential nature of this resurrection. I want to give my life to him. Would you pray for me? Would you help me? Sure. If nobody comes, that's fine. Do business with God on your own as well. What is it that God is saying, turn it over to me this morning. Receive the hope and the victory that comes from the resurrection. And we'll pray for us, we'll stand and we'll sing because he lives. We'll sing that through a couple of times and we'll be dismissed. In these next few moments, listen to what God is saying to you. Respond to Him in faith this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the fact of the resurrection. Lord, I pray for those this morning who who may be a, a little skeptical, who may be a lot skeptical. Lord, I pray that that you would win them this morning, not not just through reason, though that's certainly part of it, but simply through your love and your mercy, your kindness, Lord, Scripture says, is what leads us to repentance. We thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, that in the Scripture we see that even in the midst of our sin against you, our complete rebellion, that you loved us and died for us. We thank you, Lord, for, for not staying dead that we worship a risen Savior who promises life to us. Thank you. Help us, Lord, to surrender our lives and the things in our lives that, that need your hope and your victory. Make us different today. Help us to respond to you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.